Uh, Lord Jesus, we praise you today, as always, for your sacrifice on that cross, on Golgotha's Mount 2,000 years ago, and your shed blood that paid the price for our sins, that we might be redeemed, and might come together in the community of the redeemed, and we thank you for that, Lord. Many of us can look back to that moment when you brought us out of darkness, that season where we were wandering around, lost, not knowing the truth, and you brought us into your marvelous light. And we praise you today. And Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in New Life Church these days. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to meet with us today, to speak to us, to change our lives a little bit more today into your own holy image. Lord, um, you're talking to us about loving one another and becoming a brother's keeper type community. And we pray you'd take us further into that journey even today. We do thank you for our brothers and our sisters in the family of God today, Lord. May we be an encouragement to them. May we lift each other up and sharpen each other, help each other along the way of following you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And you can be seated. Well, I have a letter here, an email from a family at New Life who received some help recently from your gifts to our Benevolence Fund through the Christmas offering. They write, like so many others, we are facing an uncertain future. Um, Business closing, our savings and our IRA depleted at a point where we're looking for employment when we should be close to retiring. Psalm 8 says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And they write, who are we that you shower us with such blessings and grace? We have experienced our joy meter rising as a brother and sister filled our pantry with food right before the Christmas season. And then our small group started earnestly seeking God's throne for us along with giving us gift cards And now our extended family at New Life has helped us with a much-needed benevolence gift covering some of our expenses. And then there was another anonymous monetary gift from someone else here at New Life. They write, we don't want to be in this state, but God has us in his plan, and he wants us to trust, listen to his teachings, and obey them. Our circumstances are not well, but it is well with our souls. So what can we say? We have experienced the outpouring of God's love from our New Life family, and we praise God for each of you, giving glory to God in all our circumstances. And then they signed it. That's kind of what we're talking about, being each other's keeper and uh, loving one another, not just in words, but in actions and in truth. Last week we started this series on on loving one another and, and being our brother's keeper. And on Monday, somebody wrote me an email and said, I'm into that, and, and I want to follow Christ in that, but could you help me understand when, it's, when enough is enough, when it's time to stop helping, when that becomes no longer loving to continue helping someone? And those of you who are in the helping professions encounter this, don't you? And those of us who follow Christ and, and want to be in people's lives and help them, we, we sometimes find ourselves stretched and we're wondering, is there, is there a time when... when um, it's no longer loving to keep helping. And I replied back to her, and she said it was helpful and thought it might be helpful for you. So if you'd like to kind of find out my thoughts on that and where I'm at, you can log on to our website, enewlife.com, 
searched for uh, Pastor Steve's blog, and I wrote the, uh, I cut and pasted and put it over on that blog site, so you can give me your thoughts on that. How many of you watched the game this past Monday night? Did you watch it? Not quite the outcome we were hoping for. And uh, I must confess that long about 11 o'clock, it looked like Texas, right at the end of the third quarter, it looks like Texas was pulling away with their hurry-up offense, and it looked like, you know, and so I went to bed. And uh, it's just kind of where I'm at at my age, by about 11 o'clock, I'm just toast, you know. And so, but I'm glad it turned into a, a good game, a close game, and uh, I'm going to refer back to it in a few moments here. So keep that in mind. We're talking about what it would take and what it would look like for this church, New Life, to become a true Brothers Keeper community. Last week I said this notion is a stretch for many of us, myself included, and that God wants to stretch us so that we're not the same, we're changed. And my prayer is that this weekend will be a stretch for many of us as as well. So I hope you're ready for that. And the way I'd like to begin is I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, and we're going to read aloud a passage of Scripture like we did last week. So if you'd stand with me, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 is going to appear on the screens. It's also on your study outline. Classic portion of Scripture having to do with the church. Let's read it aloud together, beginning with verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You may be seated. As each part does its work. I think we all need to understand that there are things that can get embedded into the life and culture of a church that can actually work against creating a brother's keeper culture, a brother's keeper community. I'm talking about ways of thinking, mindsets, belief systems, attitudes, Today I'm hoping that God will open our eyes to some of those and that we as a church will consciously reject those mindsets and attitudes and will embrace the truth of God's word as we come to understand it together. Let me illustrate it like this. Suppose you were fortunate enough to have obtained tickets to the Buckeye Bowl game this past Monday night. Wouldn't that have been cool? And your wife lovingly yet reluctantly gave you permission to go, or husband, or whatever. And you were so excited, and you thought, you know, I'm going to trade 30 degrees in Columbus, Ohio, for the 70s or whatever it was, out in Glendale, Arizona. So you dress in your shorts, and you got your sunglasses, and your suntan lotion, and you board the plane 
for Arizona to, to see the game. And you're so excited. You're so juiced up because you're thinking, I get to be here. I get to be at the game where Trestle and company will finally redeem themselves from their miserable performances in the last several bowl games. And I'm so excited. I get to be there. And so you arrive and you take your seat up in the nosebleed section because you weren't able to get the great tickets, but you at least got in the stadium. And you've got 80,000, 90,000 screaming fans all around you, and you are just pumped because you're at the game. And, but you are in the nosebleed section, so you've got to get your binoculars out. And you pan down to the goal line. As you know, the Buckeyes are awaiting the opening kickoff from the Texas Longhorns. And to your shock and dismay and utter disbelief, instead of seeing Lamar Thomas down there at the goal, at the goal line waiting to receive the kickoff, you see Jim Tressel. And you're like, you've got to be kidding me. I took two days off of work and took all this time to come out here and watch Tressel play? What's going on here? And so the Longhorns kick off and the ball's in the air and Tressel angles for it and tries to catch it, muffs it. Wham! 11, 290-pound Texas Longhorns bury him in the turf. And you're going, this is going to be a long game, a long day, if this is how it's going to go. You fear for his life, but you finally see him emerge from the pile of humanity and brush himself off and limp back to the huddle where he huddles with himself and calls a play. And you're like, time out, what's going on here? Trestle walks up to the line of scrimmage, hikes the ball to himself, tries to run. Wham! He's annihilated by beefy Texas Longhorn linemen. And you're going, whoa, does anybody else see a problem here? This is not what I came to see. This is not what I paid good money to see. And then you see Trestle again emerging from the pile and this time limping more severely back to the huddle and he motions over to the sidelines and you say to yourself, finally, somebody's getting some sense here. And you look over and you see three assistant coaches trotting out onto the field and they join Trestle in the huddle. Call a play, walk up to the line of scrimmage and they try to pull it off and once again the outcome is predictable, they get slaughtered. And you are beside yourself. You're saying, where are the Buckeyes? Where are the players? Where's Pryor? Where's Beanie Wells? Where's Rabisky? And you look over on the bench, and there you spot some of the Buckeye players sitting on the bench. And they've got big smiles, and they're cheering, and they're saying, go get them, coach. Great play. Way to go. We're with you all the way. And then you pan further up into the stands and you see some other Buckeye players like Laurinaitis and those guys. And they don't have smiles on their face. They look disgusted. And they're like, what's the matter with you? That's atrocious play calling. We could do better than that. Would you pay good money to go see a bowl game like that? Some of you were like, yeah, I would. <laughs> It would be interesting for a while. You say, that scenario sounds ridiculous. And it is. Ineffective, ridiculous, and there is something eerily similar to that taking place in churches, thousands of churches all across our country every week. Equally as ineffective. Equally as ridiculous. It's a way of thinking about church. It's a way of doing ministry in a church that works against a brother's keeper culture. 
Let me explain what I mean. Let's say you had the opportunity to travel around this country and go visit dozens and dozens of churches. This is my attempt to draw a couple of churches here. And you got to spend, let's say, several months with each church, and you observed how they carried out ministry in that church, how the people's needs were being met, how people were being discipled into the you know, into following Jesus Christ, and you got to observe that, you would see a, a wide range of ministry philosophies, but on the outer edges of this continuum, you would see two different and distinct ways of doing ministry. One I will call, PC stands for pastor-centered, and MC stands for member-centered. And you could chart all the churches that you visited on this continuum. You could mark them and say, this church is here, this church is here, this church is more over here, this church is here. And that would be an interesting experience. Pastor-centered and member-centered ministries. I grew up in a church that operated as a pastor-centered church, and I want to describe that for you, and I suspect that a number of you have experience in those kinds of churches as well. Let's talk first about pastor-centered ministry. What does that look like? Well, first I think we could say it's the traditional pattern in many, many churches, especially Baptist churches, like the ones I grew up in. It's the traditional pattern. They've always done it that way. No one stops and thinks, is this the best, most effective way to do ministry? Or is this biblical? It's just the way that it is. It's always been done that way. It gets passed down from generation to generation. If they get a new pastor, he inherits that system. It's traditional. In a pastor-centered ministry, it's the pastor who is expected to do most of the real ministry. The members expect that. They say, that's what we pay him to do, to minister to the congregation. So if there's a need, you call the pastor. That's how it works. If there's a need for someone to be prayed with, to be counseled with, to be given guidance or instruction for a visit, for encouragement, for comfort, whatever the need is, whatever the ministry need is, the, the prevailing notion is you call the minister. We even call him the minister. And it's his job to kind of get around to everybody's needs and meet all the needs. In this kind of a church, the pastor is primarily a minister, a need meter. He's trying to get to everybody. And the members are primarily spectators. They come on weekends. They watch the, the paid clergyman minister. During the week, they ask for ministry. They're often cheering, sometimes criticizing. Spectators. In this kind of a church, ministry tends to be centralized and kind of under control. And sometimes the pastor's own personality enters into this. He kind of wants everything to flow through him. So he kind of becomes the bottleneck. My contention is this, that in a pastor-centered ministry, the potential for growth is very limited. Why? Because he can only get to so many people. Someone's always feeling neglected. The average size of a church in America is about 70 to 80 people, and there's a reason for that. There's a, a limit, a capacity. And I would also contend that in a pastor-centered church, the members, although there's part of them that like it, there's really a, a deep-seated frustration that says, I want to offer something. I've got something to offer as well. I've got gifts. I've got abilities. I'd like to be in the game, but they're not given that permission, and so they stay immature. 
Pastors get burnt out, and the families of pastors become resentful. I've seen this again and again and again. There is an epidemic. You, don't, you may not know this because you don't read like pastors' magazines and blogs and things, right? But I do. There's an epidemic of pastoral burnout, and people are leaving the ministry in droves. In part, in my estimation, because the system is designed to stretch them thin and wear them out. Now, some of you are connecting the dots here, and you're, you're seeing the analogy between pastor-centered ministry and the ridiculous Buckeye bowl game scenario that I just painted for you. There's some striking similarities. I'm curious, now that I've explained this, how many of you have been in a church or grew up in a church, have experience in a church that operated this way, pastor-centered? Can I see your hands? To that, saw some of the negative fallout, the negative outcomes. Can I see your hands? Yikes. That's sad, isn't it? About 25 years ago, before we ever came and started this church, we were introduced to another way. And it kind of rocked our world. Because it's not what we saw growing up. It's not what we'd seen, you know, where we were at. But it was based out of Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, the passage that we just read. And we embraced it 25 years ago. We call it member-centered ministry. Member-centered ministry. Not pastor-centered, but member-centered ministry. And it looks like this. First off, we believe it's the biblical pattern. It's the one that's in Scripture. Now, Jesus said, you know, there's going to be times where your tradition comes up against the Word of God. And what should you choose? The Word of God. He rebuked the Pharisees for letting their traditions trump God's Word. We believe this one's found in Scripture. And in member-centered ministry, the primary distinctive is that most of the real ministry in the church is carried out by members. The hands-on, life-on-life Get your hands dirty. Need meeting ministry in the church is done by the members of the church, the real ministry. If there's a need, members usually find out first and meet it. And in this kind of a church, the pastor functions primarily as a coach. So I'm Coach Steve talking to you today. I got my trestle vest on. I thought about dyeing my hair gray, but it'll be gray in a few years anyway, then I won't have to. Most pastors I know are coaches in their heart. That's what they do. Oftentimes you'll find them coaching their little league teams that their kids are in. They're coaches. They enjoy doing what coaches do, setting the game plan, conditioning the players, equipping the players, cheerleading, doing what coaches do. And that's, they, in this kind of a, a ministry philosophy, they're allowed to do that. Coach and equip the members for ministry. In this kind of a church, members are primarily ministers, empowered to meet each other's needs. You know, 500 years ago, a guy named Martin Luther instigated the Reformation. You're familiar with this, right? And one of the outcomes of that Reformation effort was that the Word of God got put back in the hands of the common man in his own language, in her own language. It's a great, great thing. Many scholars believe that these days we're in the midst of a second reformation where not only is the word of God being put back in the hands of the common man, but the ministry of God is being put back in the hands of God's people. It's a reformation I'm all for. 
because I think it's biblical. I think it comes out of Ephesians 4. You see, when you think about ministry, meeting the real needs of real people, just take me, for example. I'm very limited. For example, I've never been divorced. Hope to never be divorced. But we have dozens and dozens and dozens of people coming into our church who've been through that experience. Who is best capable and qualified to come alongside a person who's going through a situation like that and minister to them? Wouldn't it be someone who's been there, who's done that, who's found God to be sufficient for them in that situation to come alongside a person like that? To me, that makes sense. God has equipped them through their experience and through the word of God to minister. I have not yet lost a parent. I've not yet been in a situation where my parents were aging to the point where they needed care. I have not yet gone through a bankruptcy. I have, I've never been addicted to alcohol. And we have people coming into our church, praise God, that, that are going through these kinds of situations. And, you know, like the alcohol thing, I just think, you know, just stop. Just stop it. Because I haven't been there. I don't understand. I, I don't have the right mix of compassion and experience. I know the word of God. And I'm committed to teaching and equipping the people of God through his word. But there's that life experience side that I'm limited in. But thank God, he is equipping and empowering members of new life in each of those situations and many more to be able to come alongside someone and offer ministry. That's the way it works in a member-centered ministry. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Sometimes I think where it is happening, Jesus just looks back and says, man, I love that. (laughs) That's how I designed it. In this kind of a church, ministry is decentralized, and sometimes it gets a little chaotic. There's ministry going on that, you know, the paid professionals don't even know about. That's okay. The growth potential is unlimited because members can get to everybody. The members are maturing. They're using their gifts. They're growing. They're engaged. They feel like, this is my church. I'm in it. I'm, I'm vested here, and they're fulfilled. And the pastors are in Aruba. I love member-centered ministry. It's awesome. Just kidding. Just kidding. You say, well, don't you and the other pastors do any ministry? Well, sure we do. But not so much because we're pastors, but because we're followers of Jesus, like you. Our pastoral ministry is coaching, equipping, training. When I look at Ephesians 4 more deeply, I see the beauty of God's plan as he unfolds it for how it's supposed to work in his church. I see, first of all, in verse 11, that God says he will provide the church with a gifted team of leaders. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. God says, I'll take responsibility for assembling a team of leaders for each of my churches. I see in verse 12 then that those leaders must not be distracted from prioritizing the equipping of members to do ministry. Among all the good things that we can do, God says, I want you to focus in on equipping the people of God to do ministry. Third, I see that members must step up and minister to each other, which is what we've been talking about these days. You see, pastors, it says, prepare God's people to do works of service or the work of the ministry. So it's, it's the members who are doing ministry with and for each other. And then number four is the kicker. 
You see, given that, it's implied that members then must be willing to receive ministry from each other and not just from pastors. Do you see that? It's like it counts. When you're in the hospital and you just need encouragement and prayer and your small group comes and they pray over you, guess what? That counts. That's ministry. Don't say, but Pastor Brian didn't come and pray over me. You've been ministered to. I was in our small group uh, this week. I'm a member of a small group. I don't even lead it. I'm just, I'm a participant in our small group. And uh, as we neared the end of our time together, one of the ladies just started to share. She just said, you know, I'm just going through so much right now, just physically and emotionally. She looked at us. She said, you're, you're my family. Would you all pray for me? And she kind of moved to the center of the room. Let me tell you what I did not do as a pastor. Here's what I did not do. I did not say, step aside, little people. Make way for me to offer a clergified, professionally sounding, pastoral prayer, a word of intercession on behalf of our dear sister. I did not say that. Or anything even like that. You know what happened? He said, thank you. The whole group just kind of reflexively moved in. And sure, I prayed, but I was one of a dozen people who were praying over this sister. And just loving on her and encouraging her. And when we were done, she looked up and you could just see she was lifted. And it was the ministry of the people of God. Praying for her. Coming alongside. Touching her. Encouraging her. That's the way it's supposed to work. In the body. In a brother's keeper type of community. Members are willing to receive ministry from other members. From each other. Number five, when we're doing this, when we're following God's blueprint, his pattern for how ministry is carried out, it says in verses 13 through 15 that God will cause the body to be built up in unity, maturity, doctrinal stability, growth, and love. Good things, amen? Things we all want. And this happens, number six, as each part does its work. As each part does its work. Noticeably absent from God's design is any hint of a casual, ho-hum, non-committal attitude about what it means to be part of the team. What you see, in contrast, is every part doing its work, every person deeply committed to the team and to each member of the team and to doing their part. So I want to talk to you in my time that remains about commitment. Commitment. As each part does its work. 25 years ago, before we ever moved here and started this church, we decided to build commitment right into the membership covenant of this church. Even before the church was ever started. Basically we said this, we hope lots of people come and attend New Life Church on the weekends. We hope thousands of people come and attend. But from time to time, we're going to put out a call for people to step up and commit themselves to being active, participating members in this body. We're going to raise the bar pretty high 
for what it means to be a member at New Life Church. Because we'd heard that there were churches in the land where you could actually be dead and still be on the membership roll. I mean, like, dead, buried, out in the cemetery behind the church, but listed on the, as a member. That just didn't seem right to us. Membership needs to mean something. And so we said this. If you want to become a member here at New Life, we're going to ask some things of you. These things have pretty much remained the same for 25 years. We're going to ask you, number one, have you been saved? Have you ever come to a point in your life where you were convicted of your sins and that you were separated from God and you turned from your life of sin and turned to Jesus Christ, put your faith in him, bowed your knee and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? That's called being saved, being born again. And we ask that question of every prospective member. Have you been saved? If they say no and they want to become a member, we say, well, would you like to to be saved now? And we give them the opportunity. And then we ask, have you been baptized by immersion in water after that, after your salvation? We believe that baptism is this badge of salvation that Jesus commanded all of his followers to wear. So baptism is a membership requirement at New Life. Then we ask, Are you in substantial agreement with our statement of faith? New Life Church's statement of faith. This is a very important document that describes what we believe about the Bible and God, Jesus, man, sin, salvation, angels, demons, heaven, hell, the church, the end times. And we ask prospective members to read through that and to sign off and say, yeah, I'm in agreement with the main points of this church's statement of faith. And then number four, we ask, will you place yourself under the accountability of this church to help you grow spiritually? See, this is where membership in a church parts ways with membership in a country club. There's accountability here, spiritual accountability. This is a permission that you give to your pastors, elders, small group leaders, and we're learning to each other to hold you accountable for walking the walk with Christ. Following those questions, we let prospective members know that membership here involves five commitments going forward, action-oriented commitments. Here they are. Say them with me. Number one, prioritize weekend worship. Prioritize weekend worship. That's like what you're doing right now. Gathering regularly with the body of believers in weekend celebrations. Coming together, we understood 25 years ago, as we understand today, that we're wired to need this every seven days in the rhythm of our lives to come together and get focused or refocused on God, His glory, Jesus Christ, and our mission in this world. So we say, if you're going to be a member here, come! Be here! On time! Early, with your heart prepared to worship God from that opening note, with your heart prepared to receive the word of God and obey it, prioritize weekend worship. Don't wrap it around your life. Wrap your life around it. Make it a priority. That's what believers have done for 2,000 years. Commitment number two is what? Get connected in a small group. This is something we believed in from the beginning. So critical. 
We decided decades ago that small groups would be our primary ICUs, intensive care units. Our, our care centers where so much real hands-on ministry happens. See, it's hard in a congregation of 500 people to really be each other's brother's keeper, isn't it? It really is. But those six or eight or 10 or 12 that you meet with weekly, they, you can get in each other's lives, know each other, know each other's kids, pray for one another, take your masks off, start giving permissions to speak into each other's lives. See, this is where a brother's keeper community really can happen and flesh out. It's in a small group. It's in a small group. We started this church. We had four small groups, Home Fellowship North, Home Fellowship South, Home Fellowship East. What do you think the other one was? <laughs> Home Fellowship West. West. Four small groups. I was in one of them, led one of them. 25 years later, I'm still in a small group. I need this. You need this. It's a commitment of membership at New Life. You know, the early church, it says, met on Solomon's porch, which held thousands of people on weekends. And then they met from house to house. They met in homes. There weren't any church buildings for the first 300 years of the church. The primary meeting place was in homes. In homes. Prioritize weekend worship. Get connected in a small group. Number three, start serving in a ministry. As I've said, it was never God's intent that pastors hog all the ministry for themselves, all the good stuff. But to share it, we ask our members to serve to offer their time, talent, and treasure to serve their brothers and sisters in the body. Serving is a membership expectation. Number four, invest your financial resources. See, we believe that the generosity of our God needs to rub off on us. That we need to reflect his generosity. And every year we ask our members to re-up on this commitment. Say, yes, I'm going to continue or maybe increase my investment in God's work through my local church. And then number five, commitment to start reaching out in love to others who don't yet know Christ, others who need him. We ask our members to take seriously their responsibility to, to know who's in their life that God's working in and to start interceding for them, praying for them, to start investing in, in that relationship with that person, and then to seize the opportunity to invite them to something. Invite them to a celebration at New Life or a men's breakfast or a July 4th activity or a women's event or a teen event or whatever is appropriate. These things have been part of our membership covenant here since the beginning. Now, we realize that when we raise the bar like this, that we would always have several hundred people hanging around who weren't willing, ready, or able to clear that bar, but were enjoying New Life. And we realized that was the case. But several thousand people over the years have felt prompted by God to become partners, joint partners with us in the work here. And they've made their commitments public, and we praise God for that. You know, I'm ashamed to admit that there were times when I was, when I caved into the culture and I was kind of apologetic about our membership commitments. I remember thinking, you know, people are so busy and, their lives are so full, and here we are, you know, adding additional requirements to them. And um, I felt bad about the commitments I was asking people to make. But I've come to realize a few things about them. I've come to realize they reflect the priorities of a follower of Jesus. You know, Jesus did all these things, these commitments we just mentioned. 
except getting saved. He didn't need to get saved. He had no sin. He got baptized. He worshipped God regularly in weekends. It says, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue and worshipped. Was he in a small group? He started a small group. Had three apprentice leaders. Trained them to take over when he left. Did he serve? Oh, my gracious. He came to serve. Did he give? He gave his life. So we learned last week, he laid down his life as a ransom for many. Did he reach out? Yeah, he reached across galaxies to spread his love to others. Jesus did these things, and he calls his followers to do the same. And then I realized that these things are really just a natural response to the gloriousness of God. I mean, when you start to see Jesus Christ for who he really is in his glory and what he's done for you, you're going to ask, where can I sign up? Will you let me in? Could I please have the privilege of serving, of giving, of investing, of connecting, please? And then I came to realize more recently that these, these commitments are necessary for this church to ever become a member-centered ministry church and a brother's keeper kind of community. You see, these are the baseline commitments for the team to know that, yeah, we're on the same team. We've made these, we share these commitments together that true community can build off of those. So I'm apologetic no more. I know your lives are busy, so is mine. But as a fellow servant of Jesus Christ, I call you to commitment, deep, heartfelt, sincere commitment to the only enterprise that Jesus ever started, the church. I'd like you to reach into your worship folder and pull out a little blue response card. It looks like this. I'd like everybody to do this, if you would. You know, if we're ever going to become a brother's keeper kind of a church, we've got to reject some things that our culture is impressing on us. Our culture says, you can do it yourself. Our culture says, you don't need others. Our culture says, be a consumer. Our culture has a trend towards isolation and non-commitment, doesn't it? Our culture says, don't get tied down, don't commit, keep your options open. But Jesus says, take up your cross, lay down your life, commit. And I've been thinking about this a lot. I think that for many, many of you, it is time to commit. Right here at the outset of a new year, what better time? It's time. Time to commit to being part of the team at New Life. Time to step out of the stands and get on the field and get in the game. Time to stop being a spectator and start being a player. Time to stop being a critic and start being a contributor. Time to stop being a consumer of religious goods and services and be consumed by the glory of God and His cause. I think it's time. You know, you don't find in the New Testament any notion of freeloaders. You know, groupies, hangers-on, who just like to be around and just enjoy the benefits without putting any skin in the game. What you find are committed, 
skin in the game, joint partners who are fully vested with each other and in the mission. I believe for many of you it's time. On this blue card, it describes a very important first step that I'm challenging many, many, many of you to take today. It's a class that we offer here called Discover New Life. Some of you have been hanging around New Life for months or years, and you've never yet taken that step. You know, sometimes I meet people and I always feel stupid because I, I say, well, hi there, I don't think I know you, I'm Pastor Steve. And they say, we know. We've been coming for five years. And I always feel like I'm the dumb one, but I think in some cases it's, it's not me. It's that you do come and you kind of slip in and slide out and you're not engaged, you're not committed, and we've just never crossed paths. But other times it's just my memory, okay, that's failing. But if you've been coming for five years, why not take the step? Your heart is with us. You've been coming for five years. Get on the team. Get in the game. Take this step. It's time. You know, there's a time for dating, and then there's a time to commit. <laughs> and for some of you, now is the time to commit. Put skin in the game. Join the rest of us. Take this step. One interesting phenomenon at New Life these days is we have a number of people coming back to New Life. They were here, they were away for a season, and now coming back. Many families. And maybe that's you and you're kind of wondering, hey, I love being back. I'm not sure kind of where I stand, what my status is, what's my pathway back in. I say, take this first step. If you're coming back to New Life, join the rest of, of these folks. Take this first step. Take the class. You say, well, I took it before. It's different. You say, how do you know? Because we rewrote it this week. Okay, it's different. And you can take the abbreviated version, the special edition, next Sunday night at 5 o'clock. It's abbreviated because I just gave you the first 40 minutes of it. You've, you've completed a third of the class just from being here this morning. Take this step. I also this week read our entire church constitution. There's some inspiring reading. I was reminded that our Constitution provides that 16-year-olds and up who take the Discover New Life class, make these commitments, can become, in fact, full-fledged, card-carrying members, joint partners at New Life. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're a teen today living at home and God's stirring you up. Get, get in the game. Or maybe you're brand new around here and you, ha- you made a new, new Year's resolution to come to church, and you've been here two weeks, and you're like, whoa, you know, you're, the bar's way up here. I'm just checking things out. That's fine. Come, check things out. But if you like what you see so far, take this next step. Take the class. Discover what our vision is all about, our values, who we are. Meet Claude Davis, who leads that class, who's like the greatest person in the whole world. Check it out. Take the step. I am asking you, I am calling you to get committed to the greatest cause in the whole world right here at the outset of 2009. We're going to give you the next few moments with that blue card in hand to reflect on this. Our worship team is going to come and play some music in the background. Just take the next few moments and just say, God, Jesus, what are you calling me to? Which of these boxes should I check?
You know, is it time? Is it time for me to stop dating and, and commit? And then make a response. And then Pastor Brian will come in just a few